Go ahead and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 7 this morning. We are only going to read, I think, 11 verses, uh, but we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. So Leviticus chapter 7, I believe we're going to read verses 28 through 38. So the tail end of this portion given to the priest, the Lord communicating uh, their role and the several offerings he's given them already. So hopefully you've read it this week already, but uh, let's read it uh, now. I'll read 28 through 38 of Leviticus chapter 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, He who offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hands shall bring the offerings made by fire to the Lord, The fat with the beast he shall bring, that the beast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the the breast shall be Aaron's and his son's. Also the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. He among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right thigh for his part. For the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering I have taken from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings. And I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons from the children of Israel by statute forever. This is the consecrated portion for Aaron and his sons from the offerings made by fire to the Lord. On the day when Moses presented them to minister to the Lord as priest, the Lord commanded this to be given to them by the children of Israel on the day that he anointed them by a statute forever throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the consecrations, and the sacrifice of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day when he commanded the children of Israel to offer their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, we are we're humbled to be in your presence. We're humbled to have access to your word this morning, access to the means of grace you've given, humbled to have ears to hear, to even be addressed by you as a privilege. And Lord, that's our desire now as we consider your word this morning, as we attempt to understand what it is you would have us to know. I pray, Lord, that it would be your words that are heard, not mine, that Hearing, you would, by your Spirit, give us grace to apply to our lives all of that which is said. Father, we thank you and we praise you for you are indeed worthy. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay. So, with the conclusion of Leviticus chapter 7, we actually are coming to the end of a section In fact, if you remember, all the way back when we started in the book of Leviticus, we said that chapters 1 through 7 was its own literary unit. We remember the big picture here. God has descended, is is descending onto the tabernacle, and He's ascending to His holy throne, speaking through His holy servant Moses to His holy people Israel. Then... In his initial address, his inaugural address to the people of Israel, he explains how they are to bring offerings to him. We saw the burnt offering explained, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and the peace offering. And then the Lord turns and speaks now specifically 
to the priest of the people in chapter 6, verse 8. He exhorts the priest very specifically. Their main job, their primary job in all of this is they are to make sure to keep the fire burning. That need to have an atoning sacrifice constantly before the Lord. And last week, as we looked at the remainder of chapter 6, we saw very clearly that the Lord is very serious about holiness. His sacrifices were to be treated very carefully because they belonged to Him. They belonged to the Lord. They had been set apart for Him and they were holy, first and foremost, because their owner, the Lord Jesus, is indeed holy. So now as we come to chapter 7, here we have a new big idea. Here's the big idea this morning. It's that God's holy priesthood, set apart for the Lord, is completely dependent on Him for their provision. God's holy priesthood, set apart for the Lord, they are completely dependent on Him for their provision. In other words, to shorten that up, the Lord provides for His priest. In fact, in chapter 7, what we get is we get a really quick review as the Lord speaks about the law of the guilt offering. And and then the first few verses are really just a reiteration of what we've already seen when the Lord addresses the people as a whole. He does give some details we didn't see the first time. But then through each of the offerings to the priest, he gives them exactly what they need to survive. In fact, look look with me at verse 35 again. In verse 35... The Lord says, this is the consecrated portion for Aaron and his sons from the offerings made by fire to the Lord on the day when Moses presented them to minister to the Lord as priest. So as perpetual provision due to them throughout their generations, here that's what we see they're given. So here's what I want want to do. I want to split this up and look exactly how and why the Lord provided for the priest. First, I want us to see... The Lord provided for His priest, first and foremost, because of their calling. The Lord provided for His priest because of their calling. Aaron and his sons, they were called to be priests. They were separated from the rest of the Israelites to serve before the altar of the Lord. They were not called to be farmers or vendors, but priests who were given a very specific task. And what is a priest exactly? Right? If, if someone were to ask you to define what a priest is, would you be able to define it? Well, one commentary de- defines a priest like this, as an official minister or worship leader in the nation of Israel who represented the people before God and conducted various rituals to atone for their sins. It was a very specific office. Now, it's worth noting the point that, it, that it's actually not a new role. This is not the first time we come to the office of priest, even in the Old Testament. In fact, the first time we see a priest in the Bible, it's in reference to Melchizedek. Remember Melchizedek? King of Jerusalem, priest of the God Most High. And interestingly, one of the few things we know about Melchizedek is Abraham provided for him by offering a tenth of the plunder that he had just won in a mighty battle. Abraham was compelled to give Melchizedek a tenth of his reward. But he's not the only priest we come to know in the Old Testament. You remember Jethro? Jethro in Genesis 18 is Moses, or Exodus 18 is Moses' father-in-law. He also was a priest. He's referred to as the priest of Midian. But But really, we could argue that the whole role of priest goes even further back. 
that it goes all the way, indeed, back to the Garden of Eden. See, Adam was to be a priest. Adam was to teach all of his descendants the law of God. He was to lead them in worship. All of creation was supposed to be led by Adam in this amazing orchestra of worship unto their creator. Now, of course, we know the story. Adam didn't offer sacrifices. There was no need for sacrifices up until that point, yes. But Adam still served in the role of priest. Then actually, what do we find immediately after Adam's fall in Genesis 3? In Genesis 4, what do we see? We see a man named Abel. Serving in the role of priest. How? Offering a pleasing sacrifice unto the Lord. Noah, Abraham, Jacob, and Job all acted as priests, offering sacrifices to God. And presumably the father of every household offered a sacrifice on the eve of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. Offering the Passover lamb in order that their family might be spared. So even they served in the role of priests. But... But now, when God established Israel as His chosen people at Mount Sinai, after their deliverance from Egypt, as He made a covenant with them, He now establishes a formal priesthood through Aaron and his descendants. And as descendants of Levi, they were to represent the nation of Israel before the throne of God. That was their task. So what are some of the things that they did? Well, as priests... They facilitated the worship, offering various sacrifices, leading people in continual confession of sin. But they were also to guard the holiness of the offering. Keep in mind that as we discuss the priest, how important that this specific role was. In fact, a lot of what you found in the middle of chapter 7 can be explained in terms of ensuring that the offerings of the Lord are guarded. In fact, look at verse 19 and 20. Uh, with me of chapter 7. Verse 19 and 20 of chapter 7 says, The flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. And as for the clean flesh, all who are clean may eat of it. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, while he is unclean, that person shall be cut off from his people. This was the job of the priest. They were to protect against things like that. They were to guard the altar. But they also acted as mediators, standing in between God and His people, offering those sacrifices. Remember, who was it that could approach the altar? It was only those whom the Lord Himself had called. Only those He had set apart. They were to teach the people the law of God. See, we often... Think of prophets in this particular role, right? Of teaching truth and speaking truth to God's people, and that's certainly correct. But it's actually the priest's role and responsibility to teach the people the law. They were to read the law aloud to the people. In fact, we see a very clear picture of this in Ezra. Whenever the Israelites returned from their exile in Babylon, the, the priest and the people, they stood day after day listening to the law read by the priest. I have so much there to say about revival, by the way. You want to talk about a real revival? Look at Ezra chapter 7, right? You know what they did? They stood and they read the scriptures all day long and they never got tired of it. You talk about a revival? All right, that's another subject. I'm getting off the trail. Okay. But the priest also set the example. In fact, it's important to note that they received no inheritance as the other tribes of Israel did. We've talked about this before. But, but why? 
They were to be near the people so they might teach them and set an example for them. They lived their lives in front of them. They were to be holy and called all of Israel to that holiness. So that's just a brief summary of everything that the Israelite priest did. Talking about guarding, uh, leading in worship, mediating, um, all of these particular things, teaching the people the law. The point is, the priest had a specific job description. It was very clear, even in the Old Testament. It was an office, but it was even more importantly, a calling. Priests were never self-appointed. They were priests of God by the Lord's appointment. And don't miss this. Okay? There was no application process for you to become a priest. There was no place that an Israel could go because he loved the Lord and was fully devoted to the Lord to volunteer priestly service. It would not happen. They were priests by God's own choosing. He selected and he called them. And listen, Israel learns that lesson that I just said very much the hard way. In fact, in Numbers chapter 16, we find the story of Korah's rebellion. Korah was a Levite. So so he was actually allowed to serve in the tabernacle, but he was also not a priest. He was a descendant of Aaron, but he was not a priest. So Korah gets some of other Israelites together and they decide, you know what? I've had enough of this Moses dude. I've had enough of Aaron's ways. I'm done with this. They are the only ones who can go to the altar, the only ones who can offer the offering. And that's not fair. I mean, after all, we are all holy, are we not? In fact, that's exactly what he says in Numbers chapter 16, verse 3. He says, you take too much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy. Every one of them. We're all holy, he says, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? And so Moses responds in verse 5. He says, tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. So this is a picture of rebellion. The, the people are, are rising up. They're, they're wanting to be priests. They want to usurp their responsibility and role placed on Moses and Aaron. And Moses says, you know what? The Lord will decide. There's so much more to that story. But in the end, the Lord does decide. For those of you who know the story, here's what Moses says. Moses says, listen, if you guys just die a regular death at some point then I'm wrong. Aaron's wrong, I'm wrong, and we should all be priests. But if you guys die some really extreme, extravagant death, say, within the next 48 hours, then the Lord's right. Aaron is to be priest. Next thing you know, Korah, his family, his servants, and everybody that was hanging out with them in the tent, the earth literally opens up, Swallows them whole and closes back. That's pretty intense, right? Not a Sunday school story, or maybe it is. Here we like to do those. But it says, they went down to Sheol alive. Listen, it wasn't just an earthquake. The earth split open. They fell in. The earth swallowed them up. Like that gives me a little anxiety just thinking about that, right? Opened, closed. Listen. The priests were priests by calling. That's the point. The Lord chose them, the Lord separated them, and called them to be His. And so, obviously, He would provide for them. And and listen, when God calls, God provides. 
That's the take-home principle here. He is faithful and trustworthy. Really, there's no better picture of this than Jesus Christ. He is the quintessential picture of that trust in God's provision in conjunction with a calling. Christ was called to serve as God's true and better priest, prophet, and king. He fulfills that role by trusting fully in his Father. Jesus' calling was ultimately, therefore, to lay down his life for sinners, to rescue them from the power of guilt and sin. Jesus did so only because he trusted in the Lord's provision, even unto a death on a Roman cross. Could you imagine a more difficult calling? I mean, look, I've been called to serve as an elder here, obviously, a pastor. It has its challenges. But it's nothing compared to laying down my life on behalf of you on a Roman cross. Not just to endure the physical pain, but to experience the full outpouring of God's wrath for you. But that's exactly what Christ did because he fully and finally trusted in God's provision. So the Lord provided not only because of their calling, but secondly, I want you to see the Lord provided because of their need. The Lord provided because of their need. They had a real need that had to be met if they were to fulfill their calling. Ministering before the Lord didn't inherently pay anything. If you were a shepherd at the end of the day, you at least had something that you could eat. That which you were shepherding. If you grew crops, you couldn't sell it. Well, at least you could eat your crops. The task they performed, unless God provided, really it provided nothing for them. And so the answer was, the Lord must provide and provide. He did. We'll see very clearly how. First, he provided very practically. God provided practically for the priest. See, for the priest, it wasn't manna from heaven, although it's obviously true that that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We take that verse. That verse does not mean that man doesn't live on bread. We do. We are physical creatures, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. So God provides practically for his servants. When when God created Adam, he didn't just create him and say, listen, you're good. You're going to figure that out. You and me, that's it. He placed him in a garden with trees that were pleasing to look at and and good for food. He provided very practically. Much later in redemptive history, one of my favorite stories. It is like, I I can't wait to see the Bible version of that Snickers commercial um, where somebody's grumpy, right? And they turn into like Abe Vigoda and all these like really grumpy people and they say, Eat a Snickers, and they turn back to the regular selves. There's a they they got to do Elijah, like they have to do Elijah because if you remember, the prophet Elijah was was running after his battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He's on the run. He's exhausted. He's ready to give up on life. The angel comes and ministers to him, and the angel doesn't just encourage him with some like spiritual platitudes. He tells him, "Bro, you need to eat. <laughs> Get up and eat some food. You're you're hangry." You have further, he didn't say, hey, that might be in the message version of the Bible, but you have further to go. You need food. Angel gives him cake, which is just, for a fat kid, it's just so happy that know that angels provide you cake. It's a very practical provision. But in the same way, God provided for his priest. He doesn't just say, I am your portion, though that's certainly true. 
He tells Israel to give them grain, to give them meat, provide for their physical needs. They need to eat. He also provides for them systematically. Which means these offerings were happening every single day as he assured that they would. They were to start it. They were at least going to be the offering in the evening and morning that they performed. But the people were to every single day bring these offerings. Yes, many of them were free will offerings. But with over a million people, there were going to be quite a few of those offerings. So the Lord provided for them systematically. He also provided for them generously. The priest, hear this, didn't get the leftovers. They got the first fruits. They didn't get the lame lamb that was a little suspect anyway, smelled a little funny, or roadkill they found on the way to the temple. They got the very best without blemish. That animal would be the best of the flock. Yes, that was to honor the Lord, but the Lord provided that for the priests. The priests were not paupers. They were well cared for. They were also provided for purposefully. This was for a purpose. It was so they could be freed up to do the work they were called to do as priests. They were to be focused on serving before the Lord. They were not to be divided in their commitments. The provision of God was meant to sustain the worship of God. So the priest had real needs that the Lord provided for practically, systematically, generously, and purposefully through his people. I want to move on, though, to look at how the Lord provided for his, peace, or for his priests through his people. So, not only did he provide for them because of their calling, because of their need, but the Lord provided for his priests through his people. Specifically, through the worship of his people. Not just through his people, but specifically through their worship. That provision, listen, this provision didn't come through some tax. It could have, but it didn't. It didn't come through some other system of giving, but very specifically, it came through their acts of worship. Remember, this this is how the people were to approach God. This is their attempt at maintaining covenants and God-prescribed means. And God uses these very means to provide for the priests. The provision of the Lord came through the worship of God's people. And so, I want us to catch this. This is very important that we listen to this. There has always been a very high correlation, inevitably, between the regularity and generosity of Israel's worship and the provision of the priest. Those two things were always a correlation. They went hand in hand. The more faithful the worship of God, the more provided for the priest. Likewise, the more faithful the priest, in theory, the more faithful the worship of the Israelites. There was a purposeful correlation here. And the fact that God, in His great wisdom, did not create a system of compensation that went from Israelite to priest, but instead from Israelite to God to priest, is absolutely brilliant. It's also worth noting that, friends, the priest didn't work for the Israelites. They worked for the Lord. The Lord was the one who, in a sense, signed their paychecks. Listen, God still provides for the needs of His servants through the worship of His people. That has not changed one iota. And and before you say, well, that's Old Covenant. Well, okay, 
Let's see if it's articulated clearly under the new covenant as well as it is in the old covenant, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? That's what we're reading about right here in chapter 7. And then he says in verse 14, Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. There are no longer priests, but God still calls men to serve His church as elders, as pastors. These men are to be provided for through the faithful giving of God's people. And so, no, we no longer offer bulls, goats, and sheep. Please don't bring any of those here. Looking at you, Brock. (laughs) I don't want them. No longer bring loaves of bread unless it's homemade or banana. But God's people are still expected to give generously from their first fruits, and through those gifts, the Lord provides for his gospel ministers. And so, listen, ultimately, and this is so critical, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. It's important for all of us to understand this. A local church does not pay its pastor, the local church does not pay a pastor. I'll say it again. A local church does not pay a pastor. The local church worships their Savior and Lord through their gifts. The Lord uses these gifts to provide for the needs of the men He calls to serve the local church. That is a a subtle but very important distinction. Do you just imagine how awkward this has been for me to write this this week, right? I know it's it's a weird thing, but this this is what we do when we preach line by line. But it's so easy for us to lose sight of this. A local body of believers, yes, they must plan and budget. We must do all of those things that we do together. Yet, ultimately, they must do all of this ever mindful of the fact that we are budgeting with the Lord's money. We are distributing the Lord's funds. The Lord ultimately provides for the one He has called. The Lord provided for His priests because of their calling, because of their need. He provided for the priests through His people. And finally, ultimately, He provided for the priests because of or for His people. He provided for the priests for His people. This is very interesting. In fact, this whole section starting at chapter 6 verse 8 through the end of chapter 7, really it all belongs together. It could have probably just as easily been preached as one unit, but it started with that perpetual fire. It was always to be kept burning, and it ends with this perpetual gift. The point of the whole is really that, that worship must continue. Worship must be sustained. It may not stop or people will perish. Keep the fires burning. Keep the priest going. Israel needed atonement so that the fire would be kept burning. Their lives depended on it. This is why the fire on the altar had to be kept burning. And it's also why the sacrifice was to be constantly on the altar. Because it was a life or death situation. And it's so easy in this epic of grace to to miss this. This is why the priests were to receive this perpetual due for all generations. It It was because their task to serve before the altar of God was really a life or death calling. The sacrificial system with its perpetual fire and priesthood was the only thing that was keeping the Israelites from being consumed by God's wrath at any moment. Let me ask you a question. 
Think about this. Is that the God you know? <laughs> like, like, can you hear this, receive it, and recognize that this is the same God you worship every day? This God who would consume the Israelites in a moment if this fire was to go out. If the sacrifice was not made, if the atonement stopped. The God who opened up the ground and swallowed up those who rebelled against his priesthood. Is that the God you worship? So holy, so morally pure, and so perfectly just that if you were to come before him on your own, the reality is that you would be consumed by his wrath? Is that the God you worship? Here's why it's important to ask. It's because that's the only God that's presented to us in Scripture. (laughs) Back to number 16 for a moment. Israel was was large, so it's not possible that everyone who was standing around watched as the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and the others. In fact, probably by the time the grapevine ended and those on the outskirts heard what happened, it was probably some version like Moses had killed them or something like that. So maybe it's not completely difficult to understand, but the reality is on the heels of this very great display of God's power and his confirmation of his calling of Aaron and his sons, you know what the rest of the Israelites do? The rest of the nation rises up and says, we don't want Aaron as our priest. We don't want the one you called. Look at Numbers chapter 16, verse 41. It says, on the next day, All the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron on the very next day. So for a second time, we didn't look at this the first time, but this is the second time the Lord actually says this in verse 45. Look at what he says. He says, get away from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. The Lord says, Moses, get out of the way. Here it comes. They're gone. They're done. The second time in two days that the threat of immediate consumption, the destruction of an entire nation, was threatened. But instead, Aaron takes the censer of fire and runs out to intercede on their behalf. Not before over 14,000 of them perished, though. But he does intercede on their behalf. Listen, here's the beautiful part of this. Israel finally got it. They had this to say at the end of the entire ordeal, this entire story that I really wish we could just read all the way through and exposit, but we'll do numbers after Leviticus probably. Um, No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Don't test me. Uh, No, Numbers chapter 17, verse 12. So the children of Israel spoke to Moses saying, Surely we will die. We perish. We all perish. Whoever even comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Shall we all utterly die? Shall we all utterly die? I mean, the reality is, apart from Christ, the answer to that is yes. (laughs) Absolutely. God is holy and just. Apart from the work of the priest, yes, All of Israel would perish. Stop Aaron from doing his work. Reject Aaron and perish. See, Israel understood what we often take for granted. To approach God as we are in ourselves is utter foolishness. We, as wretched rebels, would be consumed in his wrath in a moment. Catch this. Um, Just imagine Israel said this. They're saying this. 
And notice something. God doesn't correct them. He, he doesn't say, no, 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 no. That, that isn't true. I love you guys so much. He doesn't. He doesn't turn on his Apple Music worship playlist and play them a song about how endless his love is. He doesn't say anything like that. Instead, this is what he says directly to Aaron at the beginning of Numbers 18. He, he speaks directly to Aaron and he says, Also bring with you the brethren of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons are with you before the tabernacle of witness. They shall attend to your needs and all the needs of the tabernacle, but they shall not come near the articles of the sanctuary and altar, lest they die. They and you also. That's serious business. Verse 4. They shall be joined with you and attend to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting for all the work of the tabernacle, but an outsider shall not come near you. And you shall attend to the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar, that there may be no more wrath on the children of Israel. So, so God doesn't say, hey, no, 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 don't overreact. I love you. Come here. He says, yeah, you're right. Come near the tabernacle on your own without the work of a priest, without the mediator, and you shall all surely die. If you draw near, you will perish. Stand your ground. And I was just utterly overwhelmed by this this week in my study. Here's why. Because I'm not sure that our picture of God is big enough to hear this and not be disturbed. I, I know, listen, I, this is not a popular message today. In fact, church growth experts would condemn me for, I'm sure, being too insensitive to those who might be seeking. But the reality is, it's the Word of God. And if we're going to understand why God provided for His priests, we have to understand them and their centrality to God's plan of redemption. The reality is, without the priest, all would perish. And if we don't understand that, then we don't understand the gospel. The priesthood was not an optional role to be fulfilled if someone was available or they had time in their busy schedule to do it. It was central to their existence. The lives of God's people, the existence of the nation of Israel, depended on the service of the priest. After all, priests were the mediators that facilitated the atonement of Israel's sin. No priest, no sacrifice, no atonement, then no Israel. So the provision for the priest was as much for the people as it was for the priests themselves. Now here's where we apply this. Hear me. Do we think that we need that intercession any less than they did? Do we? I know, look, I've been accused at times of being a fire and brimstone sermon, and this probably won't help that reputation today. I know that they're not popular. And that's really, I promise you, it's not what I'm attempting to do here. I, I do just want us to all hear the truth. The point is, is that Korah was no worse a rebel than you and I. You understand that? That's the reality. The leaders of Israel were no worse rebels than you or I. Listen, they rejected God's chosen priest, Aaron, but we've rejected Christ, have we not? For their rebellion, Korah and his family, his servants, they were swallowed up. They went to Sheol alive. For our rebellion, Christ was swallowed up. He perished, not us. So what other response do we have to that than worship? It's just worship. Worship. 
It's amazement. It's all, I mean, that is who God is. It shouldn't disturb us. He is indeed holy and our sin is, is deserving of far worse than we read in the pages of the Old Testament. But you and I, friends, if we have seen the face of Christ, we have seen a grace that far experiences outweighs anything that they experience at the altar of the old tabernacle. And so let us cling to Christ. Let us live for Christ. Let's encourage one another to remember the cost of our sin. Let us encourage one another to hate sin and mortify it. Let us celebrate the fact that though every bit of deserving as Korah and his sons, that we stand forgiven... I mean, just keep that in mind. Keep that story of Korah in your mind. What we just read about, what the experience of the Old Covenant, and then understand what we can now say, what Brother Brock read in Hebrews 10. Understand that in light of this. We can now say these very words. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through his veil, that is, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I mean, guys, the reality is, how can we hear that in our response just not be worship? And you know what I think? I think this is where we struggle in applying sermons on a day-by-day basis. Is, is Obviously, we hear things like worship, but we're so disassociated from what that means tomorrow morning that we don't really know what the takeaway is. We think, oh, yeah, Jesus did great things for me. I'm going to worship him. Sounds good. Is that when we play the music? Is that I just sing? That's... No, no, no. To worship means that you offer your life as a living sacrifice. To worship means that the gospel isn't something you just leave between the walls of this building, but you go out and you display it in grace and how you communicate with others and the way that you do your jobs and the way that you speak to your wife and children and the way that you interact with strangers, that the grace of God would be the determining factor in every single decision that you make at every single point of your life. So you want an application? Worship, central, all of it, do it. Now, now you fill in the blanks. What does that look like? Because the reality is I don't have to hit the buttons and call you out on that. The reality is if you're a child of the Lord, you know exactly the way that you're not really worshiping the Lord in your day-to-day life. The Spirit of God is dwelling within you, which we believe for the child of the King. You know exactly what buttons are being pushed. So my charge to you is think about who you are. And what you've done in light of what Christ has given you and provided for you. And think about how the priest providing for the people was only but a picture of Christ providing that which lasts for eternity for us. And then go to the Lord and say, well, I just can't do this. Yeah, Lord, I I know that I deserve to literally have this ground opened up. And me fall in and swallow it back. I know that. But I really don't know if I can love my neighbor. I know that in spite of that, that you, you saved me, that you actually came, lived and died for me, that you, who were, who were perfect and never deserved any just or wrath, went and willingly took it. I know that. But man, that, that worship serves stuff. I mean, I, just, I, don't, I don't like kids. 
I don't really want to invest into the coming generations. I'll certainly complain about the next generation that comes up. But like as far as actually having the words of life and imparting grace to them, no. Why would I want to change? Friends, you, you do it. Leave whatever it is open this morning and say, Father, you know and I know exactly the way I'm not worshiping you with my body as a living sacrifice. You know and I know. And Father, you've given me grace to be allowing me to hear this very thing right now. Because the answer is not do better, friends. The answer is not, well, we'll just stop it and, and do this. The answer is think about the goodness of the gospel. And when you do, how could you not want to live stronger, better, more for him? Do you stand with me as we close this morning in prayer? Gracious Father, we are in awe of who you are. You know very well, Lord, that we are prone to presume upon your grace and love. Father, we are are prone to minimize the reality that we deserve your judgment and wrath. Father, it's only by the grace of God through the blood of Christ that we can draw near before you. It's only by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can even stand together in your presence and pray prayers and sing songs. Certainly, we do not do so perfectly. And yet, while we bring these broken offerings of praise, we have no fear of the ground opening up and swallowing us. We have no fear of being consumed by your wrath because we know that Jesus satisfied it for us. So we simply say, Father, thank you. And we simply say, Father, help us. As you point to the areas of our life where you are not receiving our worship, that, Lord, we would go even now, change, not because we had ten steps to fulfill more righteousness, but simply because the gospel was truly at the forefront of our mind day in and day out. We ask for your help in this as we are distracted creatures prone to wander. And yet we're thankful for the assurance of forgiveness of grace that you have for those who are yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been good to be in the house of the Lord this morning, church. He's a good God, isn't he? And the only way we can come before the throne of God above is by the work of his son, Jesus Christ. The question is, for those of you who don't know the Lord, um, how will you approach God? I can guarantee you that you do not want to approach him without having your sins paid for. I promise you. It's actually my worst nightmare for you if that were to be the case. But praise be to God, he has offered a way that those who deserve his wrath can become sons and daughters of the Most High King. And it is through repenting of your sins and placing your faith in the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ, who died in your place, who bore the wrath reserved for you so that all you can know is grace. The question is, who is the Lord of your life? Who is your king? Is it you? Or is it Jesus? And if you...
don't know the answer to that question, if you just struggle with what that looks like for your life, please let me encourage you, don't leave today without talking about it. As we saw for people of Israel, the work of the priest was a life or death situation. And friends, you are in that life or death situation. You will either have life eternal by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or you will have death eternal, being separated from Him forever in a place called hell. The goodness of the gospel that God loved you enough to send His Son to bear the punishment of your sins and to give you hope and life. So would you respond today by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Christ? The, uh, there'll be deacons down front, as always. Um, I myself will be down front. I'd love to, after the service, talk to you about what it means to have a relationship by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the church, I think we covered the application. But just one more time. What's the area that you're not offering your life as a living sacrifice in worship? Whatever it is the Lord's speaking to you, do not quench the Spirit. Do not turn from that, but lean into it. It is good. It is good to know your sin, to confess it, because it's the only way that you can experience the joyous forgiveness and full assurance of forgiveness of the Lord Jesus. So celebrate that. If the Lord has placed a part of your, in your life to the forefront of your mind and you just know yourself to be failing this area, then you can even celebrate that because it's part of His grace to allow you to see it. We want to know and we want to encourage you and so as well. We welcome you to come down front and, uh, and pray with us and so we can minister to you. Again, thank you again for the privilege of allowing me to be your pastor. I know Justin echoes that as well. We love you guys dearly. We'd love to see you back here at 5 o'clock tonight for choir practice. Um, may God bless you. Brother Bob is going to close us in a word of prayer. Uh, and then I'm going to read the benediction and we'll be dismissed.